What scares me is what happens when in a small country besieged by enemy nations in a complicated and changing world, we have a society where social bonds are frayed and people cannot trust each other and they don't think they have each other's shared interests at heart. And that is what could, God forbid, lead to collapse. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoidi. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with a landsman of mine, Dr. Michal Biton, the co-founder and Rosh Kehila, or communal leader of the downtown Minyan in New York City. Michal is a scholar in residence at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America and is working on a monograph on questions of tolerance and liberalism as seen through the prism of the New York Syrian Jewish community. Michal joined me to talk about being a translator for the stories of Sephardic, Mizrahi, and other non-Ashkenazi Jewish communities. We talk about what the trajectory of those communities has been in the United States and the misunderstandings that the larger American Jewish community has about the recent waves of immigrant Jews, politically and culturally. Michal also gives insight into being a woman leader in an Orthodox religious community and witnessing the transcendence of God through parenthood. Take a listen. In a world where ideology, tribalism, and politics are linked in a cocktail that more often than not becomes toxic, Michal Biton advocates for defying stereotypes and refusing to be put in boxes that can be as oppressive as they are reductionist. Moreover, she does it herself. So my question, Michal, is how do you do it? And why do you think that's important? Hi, Andres. Really great to, to be here and to be in conversation with you. Thanks for, for having me. And thank you for that kind uh, introduction, saying that I uh, challenged some labels. I'm curious which one specifically you're referring to, to how I go. Why I first got intrigued by your work is when you started to challenge the label of Jews of color. Mm. Um, I mean, not ch- challenge is not really the, the right word. You didn't challenge it. You you try to expand or put some wrinkles and nuances in that definition uh, when you started talking about Sephardic Jews and how do we think about them and consider them in communal life. So that's one thing that first comes to mind. The second is your own personal story, right? Coming from, you know, straddling across different institutions that are both part of your quote-unquote original community, which is the the Syrian Moroccan community, but also part of a broader mainstream that is generally not associated with those communities. I'm just interested in digging a little bit into that, because I think that what we do many times is we really put people in boxes, right? And we have those labels that are not very helpful. And that ends up being how we think of our own identities, which is even less helpful. I think a lot about the question of love, love as one of the most important things we are put in this world to do. And I mean that in a way that is demands 
the ability to see the other person in a way that is deep and in a way that tries to see them in their own terms and not in a way that reflects who we are or who we need them to be. Uh, and this question animates just, you know, my theological questions, who I am as a religious Jew, but it also animates my work, both as a sociologist of Sephardic Jews, many of them more recent immigrants, many of them not white, and as somebody who grew up in a community, like you describe a Sephardic community, an immigrant community, grew up in South America as well, and who's engaged a little bit in the work of translation and bridging. What does it mean to tell the stories of communities that haven't told their own stories to new and bigger audiences? And there, I think the work of love and of seeing each other really demands that we try to understand how people think about their own experiences. And to me, that was, you know, you mentioned the conversation around Jews of color and and racial identity and Sephardic Jews. And I think what was hard for me is that I see a lot of very well-intentioned, generous people who are trying to expand their understanding and description of American Jews and often doing so, and not intentionally, so I'm not I'm not really casting um, blame here in that way, but unintentionally trying to expand and include more people, but without doing the work of figuring out how do these communities and these people think about themselves and their own experiences. Uh, so I think that's been a little bit of just the feeling in my own skin, what it means to be not seen. And also for my doctoral work, spending so many years trying to understand one particular community, really highlighted for me the absolute necessity of trying to understand people in their own terms. And some of those own terms may not be the one we expect them to be, right? There was an assumption that the moment you define Sephardic Jews as quote-unquote Jews of color, they would have certain ideological bends. They would be, they tend to be liberal, progressive, and it turns out that we're not really ready to understand that community has a different story that makes them have different political and ideological positions than the ones that we assumed when we started using those terms or those labels, correct? Like you, I remember your article talking about how many of those folks are actually conservative and and the need to understand why and how and how do they see the world? Yeah. So I would say that generally I'm, I'm a critic of the way that identity politics has evolved in the American discourse as a whole not only inside the Jewish community, but it's become a discourse in which we are able to label people very easily, cut them into categories, and then have quite politically convenient and expedient narratives about where does each community fit in and and what do they support politically. And it's a very crude way, I would say, of doing uh, politics. And it can be at times a very dishonest way of describing the empirical reality uh, in front of us. So I think we can see this in general, just in the discourse in America around identity. And we saw it in different parts inside the Jewish community. Like I said, I will continue to maintain most often done with the best of intentions, but very often done in a way that assumes, oh, if you're not Ashkenazi or if you're not white, and those, by the way, are different things, then you must you know, fit into this category. You might fit into this label and you probably belong in the progressive camp of doing uh, politics. Now, I'll mention here, you know, I, I myself, I wouldn't describe myself as, as right wing. Uh, we all like to think we're centrist. So I do think I'm centrist in some ways and have quite an attachment to classical liberalism. 
But at the same time, it's important to me to not misrepresent the majority of the views of communities that have been underrepresented. So specifically, I would say more recent migrant Jewish communities from the Middle East and other Muslim-majority countries, we don't have enough quantitative data to sustain this. But from my knowledge of these communities and for what we know in general, they both fit into the camp of racial and, and ethnic minorities in the U.S. and also very often are on the right wing of the political right. map in the US. And we don't know what to do with that. <laughs> we look at that and said, oh my God, they, they are breaking the box. We just don't know where to put them now. Yeah, but I think there's a growing realization. I mean, it's not, again, just a Jewish question. I think that there's, you know, when we think about Hispanics in America or Muslims right, in America right, or right. Muslims in Canada or like all of these communities that... Hindus, um, for example, that are also... You know, people of color, and then and they tend to be right wing in many cases. Yeah, and even the label of right wing, many of these communities, I think, are very socially conservative. So right. I don't know if their right wingness is one that has to do with economic policy or with foreign policy, but very often it has to do with what they see as the left's assault on what they conceive of as family values. And there's a lot of different values that end up animating yeah. different communities. It's kind of funny how those labels of left, right are becoming sort of virtually irrelevant today. You have, for example, now in Israel, the what's been called the most right-wing government in its history is actually most socialist in terms of, it, of its economic policy. It's all about subsidies and welfare and stuff like that and government intervention and so many aspects. So those labels are becoming more and more irrelevant. And I'm wondering if we don't have need for a for a new lexicon of politics, identity, statehood, peoplehood. What lexicon are you proposing, Andres, over here? I don't know. I'm just, I'm realizing, like, that's, pro- that's actually the problem. I'm, like, realizing that those labels are not helping, are just non-descriptive. And, like, after all, left and right comes from where people were sitting in the National Assembly in France in 1790. It, it doesn't really mean much. And if you look at many proposals that are out there, look what's happened with aid to uh, Israel. Left and right, like extreme left and extreme right are saying we need to cut aid to Israel. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying that to what extent the labels have become irrelevant. The label of white, the label of Jews of color. I, I just don't know. I'm wondering whether this vocabulary that we have to describe sociological realities that comes out of the Christian, European enlightenment have ceased being relevant for today. And now I don't know what the new ones should be, but I think we need a new set of concepts and, and words. Yeah, I mean, I think they're still relevant. I think they're definitely being transformed and they mean different things in different places. So the right in Israel, like you mentioned, looks very differently now than it did you know, 20 years ago, and even in the U.S., a lot of these terms have evolved. But I do think that they continue to hold a lot of meaning for people who hold on to them, even if they mean different things when they identify as in the right or the left. But I think we would have this challenge with pretty much any binary attempt to label people. And there's been a lot. There's attempts, I spoke about Israel. There's people who speak about Israel al-Shanab, Israel al-Shniya, the first Israel and second Israel, which has been a terminology popularized by journalist Avishai ben Chaim, whose thesis I disagree with, and who talks about a sort of first Israel, kind of talking about more privileged Ashkenazi, secular, and a more traditional Mizrahi kind of religious, socially underprivileged Israel. 
there's also those theories to talk about, and they use different labels, you know? They talk about those who are like anywheres, like people who can live anywhere in the world and they don't have like local rooted ties and those who are tied to a particular community. I think there's a lot of labels and I think that they're always going to break down, but that's the mm. nature of labels. And I still think they offer useful heuristics to try to understand the world, especially if we're sensitive enough to discover the new meanings um, in right. the labels. And the human being behind the label that are always more complex than what any label can describe. That is always. And I would say, you know, I'm very grateful that I, I lead a, a spiritual community uh, in lower Manhattan. So I have the great privilege of teaching maybe 120 or so like young Jewish adults on a weekly basis. And part of what I love about my work there is that I get to meet people in a very real way. Many of us are arguing with people on social media and labels, especially when they are with this amorphous kind of people that we don't get to meet. Yeah. That's when I think they become really destructive. And yeah. I love working with a community that I describe as being made up of a lot of normies. I don't know if, you know, people who are on yeah. Twitter know the term, right? People who are, not, their, their brain are not Twitter brains. And that's, I think, a really important thing to do. And I think often in the institutionalized Jewish community, we need uh, more reminders that most yeah. of our people are normies and most of our people are not on Twitter waging war. Yeah, and it's crazy how, I mean, I see it in myself. I'm, I'm a different person on Twitter. I always fight with that because uh, the medium transforms you. And it's very different how I argue on Twitter with somebody that I met in person, with some rando that is trolling me or that I'm like... It's really crazy how the new media is sort of eliminating that level of seeing the person behind the argument. And I think that we all need to reflect on that and just... I think we need so. to push back, limit how much we're on Twitter, how much we're arguing against other people. Let's go back to something else that you said that resonated. You're talking about sort of helping or facilitating for the Sephardi community uh, to connect with its own story. So the question is, what is that story or those stories? And how can they expand the story of um, the collective story of American Jewry? A great question. I will say I am directing right now the first national study of Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews in the U.S., so I am privileged to lead a team of really extraordinary researchers. So as we speak, are collecting data to try to tell these stories. Uh, so I'm not ready to speak yet about, you know, that national kind of point of view, but I can speak a little bit about the work I've done with the Syrian Sephardi community in New York and New Jersey, uh, and how I understand its encounter with America in a way that is different than what we might think of as a mainstream Ashkenazi encounter. My thesis that I'm, I'm working right now on a, on a book project around it, but my thesis is that this community represents like a path not taken uh, for other mostly Ashkenazi Jewish communities, which is a social organization around collective ethnicity. And in a way that doesn't have to fashion itself into a language of religious distinctiveness, which I think is the one that most Ashkenazi Jews use in America. And this was like a bit jargony. So let me try to explain yeah. what I mean. Part of the American experiment has been from its DNA, and I'm going to put aside the, you know, the matter of, of racial slavery and how awful that has been a corruption of, you know, American promises. But at least the way it pretended to tell what it aimed to do, America, 
was that it would respect difference. But the main difference that it wanted to respect was different in terms of religious difference and conscience. So it was almost like the American story was, well, in Europe, we might have been persecuted because of different faiths and believing in different gods. And here we're going to have a space in which that will not matter. You can be a citizen and belong to the body politic. And for Jews who came from Europe, that was a, a promised land, pretty much. You didn't have to change anything by coming to America. You could be Jewish. But this encounter, though, is not a, a perv, right? Not a neutral one. Because in many ways, it says your difference needs to be fashioned in religious terms, right? It cannot be a difference that has to do with an ethnic community alone that would guarantee you, right, the protection of difference, both as individuals and as a group. Does this make sense so far, Andres, what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So this has been almost like a bargain that Jews had to make in America. And I'm, I'm generalizing so much right now. Uh, but it has been a bargain the Jews had to make. And the bargain is almost like you get to be here, you get to build communities and these communities to be accepted as different communities under the protection of, of, uh, of America in this way need to be understood as religious communities and religious differences. Right. So, so whether we look at liberal American Jews, and again, I'm generalizing so much, whose main language right now is around religious difference, right? Whether we look at Orthodox Jewish communities, whose main organizing structures has been around religious difference. And I'm not saying these communities didn't have ethnic elements. And by ethnic elements, I mean a sense of we, of being like a shared family that came from the same place. Of course, they had them. But it increasingly became hard in America, especially for those who are seen as white in the later half of the 20th century, to present themselves as ethnic minorities and not as religious minorities. Sorry, this is becoming a little bit long, but the point I'm trying to make, at least with the Syrian community, is that they've had an extraordinary trajectory of establishing a community and a collective using mostly ethnic structures uh, and using like an ethnic logic to maintain itself, which is a very different way of thinking about the American Jewish experience. And I experienced that in uh, Argentina, too, where the Jewish community, to a certain extent, is ethnic, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's different, right? It's, it's mostly Ashkenazi, but, but it's still ethnic in the sense that the notion of we're an extended clan, as it were, trumps the notion of religion. In other words, what you're saying, if I paraphrase, is this. The history of European and then North American modernity is one of transforming Judaism into a religion from something that was a confluence of religion, tribal identity, ethnic and cultural elements into another, to put it crassly, into another Protestant denomination. Yeah, and I'm not the one to say this, of course. I'm quoting a lot of scholars um, and others. The, The only caveat I would say to this is that I think this history is about what this host society is offered a little bit. It's very messy when we look at Jewish communities in America. There's a lot of ethnic elements that remain in all of these communities. So I don't want to, you know, Jews became, quote unquote, a religion as opposed to an ethnic group. But of course, there's a lot of elements that are still ethnic. I think what fascinates me about the Syrian community in particular is that they have cared a little bit less about telling their story to, quote unquote, America as a whole. So because they haven't necessarily wanted to do that, they haven't had to fashion themselves in terms that make sense to their whole society to the same extent as other communities. 
Right. So I think there's like a combination there about like how much there's a certain, I don't know if I want to call it like a simulation, but maybe a simulation which communities have, which has to do with telling your story in terms that make sense to your whole society, justifying right. your difference in terms that make sense to your whole society. And the whole society is not asking, I mean, it's a different society now that it was in the 1890s. So he's not really asking them to justify anything. But, I disagree but, with that. I think that there's still constant demands being placed on any minority communities to justify their differences. And do you think that this different approach is generational? In other words, is it simply that it's a younger, quote unquote, community? In two generations, it would be it will resemble much more the the traditional, I mean, the traditional, the sociological makeup of the more, you know, older Ashkenazi community. So I think that I mean, there's been a lot of researchers who often look at Middle Eastern Jewish communities, traditional communities, and they often see them as just being a little bit behind. They right. say, give it a couple of generations, and you'll get to where we yeah, are. Yeah, you know, yeah, we yeah. Ashkenazi Jews. And I, I disagree with that approach generally. I think that. We have different Jewish encounters with modernity, and they're going to bring forth different trajectories. With this particular Syrian community, they're fascinating. And the reason that I chose this community is that they began coming in the very early 1900s. So they've been here for a very long time. I don't want to get too much into this community, but they do complicate things because they are made up of different layers of immigration. It's Uh a community that was founded in the, you know, began in the early 1900s, but continued to accept Jewish immigrants and refugees from the Middle East and North Africa all the way until 1994. So right. it actually messes up, right, our ability to place it in only one kind of like decade of immigration. But here's what I'm what I'm taking this, right? Like you're talking about a community that has a different approach or a different understanding of their own Jewish identity. And the broader community not only doesn't take it, or doesn't sort of adopt it, it doesn't even know about it. And it makes me think about how the American Jewish community is missing out on incorporating those ways of being Jewish into the quote-unquote mainstream. And the same happens for me with, for example, Russian Jews. Like Russian Jews, their their Jewish identity tends to be, again, it's it's a generalization, but tends to be more cultural, you know, culturally based and Latin American identity, which is more, much more community based. And I mean, you know, you grew up there, you know how the communities are set up in terms of community structure that are non-sided religious, but are about togetherness. And somehow, you know, the American community seeks to incorporate and adopt these new waves of Jews from other places, but it's not permeable to their ways of being Jewish. That, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think I have two responses. One is I want to be a little bit more generous to the quote-unquote mainstream. <laughs> By the way, I'm not. this is not a judgment. When people say we want to integrate Russian Jews into the community, I think that they really mean it with a lot of goodness and a lot of generosity. But I think that this concept of integrating a new community or sort of a new sub-community misses the uniqueness that community can bring to the broad story of American Jewry. But I I would have two responses that I think complicate the project that you're suggesting we're missing out on, right? Yeah. So one is that I think, you know, I often hear other people, not you, critiquing what they would call like an Ashkenormative mainstream who doesn't know how to incorporate others. And to some degree, I I agree, and I have examples of that. 
But to another degree, not all of these communities, and, and it depends on the community, but not all of them want to be incorporated. You always lose a little bit of your distinctiveness when you join, right? You know, bigger, yeah. broader communities. I think it's actually important to remember that, and I, again, I don't want to generalize too much, but that there are reasons for communities to want to have a certain amount of separation. And it's important to interrogate that uh, and what... Yeah. It's never like a neutral exercise. And the other thing I would say, you know, about learning from these other communities, I don't think that I'm talking to you right now from Jersey, where the Syrian community summers, basically most of the community moves from Brooklyn and comes to Jersey in the summer. And I think that certain elements maybe could be replicated, but a lot of them are impossible to replicate without a lot of other things that right. mainstream American Jews just wouldn't want to have. You know what I mean? It's, some of the things are like a package deal. You have some more like barriers to the outside world. You have some more insularity. You have some more. So some of these things, it's almost like I, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, if we could only take this from the Haredim or if we could only take the following. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot be inspired and learn, but in many of these communities, these elements are part of very thick structures that have many parts to them. And the, the trade-offs that we make are, I, I don't want to underestimate how complicated they are. What you're basically saying is, it's not so easy to say, let's learn from Russian Jews the value of Jewish culture, because that value of Jewish culture is connected to a much more complex historical experience and, and social reality that is not so easy to replicate. And we can't really replicate the sort of ethnic identity of Syrian Jews because it's it, you can't just take that and adopt it. But I, to I push think back, we, can you still take some elements of that and at least yeah. bring them into the conversation? So 100%, I think you should learn. You cannot replicate, but you should learn. And I'm going to give you an example to make it less abstract. Mm-hmm. So I my, my life sometimes feels a bit bifurcated in terms mm-hmm. of the universes that I inhabit. So part of my life is very much within the Sephardi community, both personally and as a scholar. And another part of my life is in Ashkenazi majority spaces uh, that tend to be more uh, liberal. And as I mentioned, I lead an independent minyan. I'm the spiritual leader of a community. And I've often reflected on the fact that I have worked really hard to bring certain Sephardi elements to my Ashkenazi majority community. So as an example, to me, uh, what I'm most proud of about my community is that people, what they most describe it as is as very welcoming, very warm. Mm. We are not pluralistic, but we're very inclusive. We want everybody to walk in, to not feel like it's a place where you have to practice a certain way to belong. And to me, that is very explicitly and intentionally modeled on a Sephardic model of a Masorati, a traditional community right. in which you have norms and you're not pluralistic, but you have inclusion and welcoming of people regardless of how you act. So that to me is very Sephardic and it's at the core of my Sephardic identity. I'll give you another example. The fact that I am a woman who leads this community, even though it's an Elachic, it follows, I would say, Orthodox practice, the community. But the fact that as a woman, I lead the community counters a lot of the social conservative aspects of many Middle Eastern Jewish communities that often come together with that, you know, welcoming aspect and, and that warmth. So there's a way of saying, when, when I think about my community, it's one example of, of a community that in some ways tries to learn and take certain aspects from Sephardi communities. And in other ways, we will not be able to do it 
uh, either because we don't have certain social infrastructures or because we don't want certain social infrastructures. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky, that ability to learn, but to understand that these are entire ecosystems and we cannot just pick out a value. It's kind of interesting, and, and let's see if you agree with this, this notion that, in fact, much of the Ashkenazi community is really a reaction to modernity, N- not to modernity, to a very particular brand of modernity, which is Central European modernity, meaning Jews came out of the Stedtler, they went to Berlin, Vienna, Paris, and London, and they discovered the modern world, and they crafted uh, a number of responses to it. You know, Reform Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, Conservative Judaism, in a way, what they all have in common is that all these denominations are a reaction or deeply shaped by modernity, by that particular brand of modernity. Would it be accurate to say that the reason that the Sephardic community can be more welcoming because it doesn't have the defensiveness that comes from having been so so influenced by the need to craft a response to modernity. In other words, when you're not threatened by modernity, you can be traditional and not be so afraid of being inclusive. You don't need to build a fence, as it were. Yeah, I, I would say, Andres, that I think what you're describing is like an idealized version <laughs> of what the Sephardic world could have become today based on its own historical trajectory. I would say that I agree with you insofar as the, the, the conditions of how Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews today, how historically their communities encounter their own modernity was different than, yeah. in, than in, especially in Western Europe. And they weren't asked to make a choice between right. integration to society and their traditional uh, worldview. So there's a certain like lack of response to rapture, right? Right. When you're not asked to make a choice, when you don't have that sense of rapture, you, you don't need to respond in certain ways. And I do think in, in many traditional Sephardi communities that resulted in continuing to have normative communities where deviance was accepted and expected. Uh, But you could kind of have both. You can have the normativity and you can have the deviance and still be a community. Right. uh, As opposed to a religious sect where there has to be certain coherence between, you know. But again, if I'm going back to 2023 right now and thinking about Sephardic and Mizrahi communities in Israel and the U.S. and everywhere, I wouldn't say that they're not defensive. I wouldn't say they're not afraid. I wouldn't call all of them welcoming. I think that there's been a lot of, you know, zigzags in history and different trajectories I try really hard to not idealize or sanitize, right? Even aspects that I love from the Sephardic yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Sephardic experience in some ways is very welcoming. And in some ways it isn't. It kind of depends on which is the boundary you're choosing to, to focus on. What does it do to you when you see, for example, the phenomenon of Shas in Israel, which is kind of a Sephardic movement that took on all the Ashkenazi trappings, Meaning you have Ari Deri dressed in uh, Lebush Litai, Lithuanian garb. And it's sort of as though that organic development of Sephardic Judaism kind of lost something when it adopted the language of Ashkenazi Haredi Judaism. Like, yeah. That's, so yeah, it's yeah. so funny. And as I was speaking with a friend a couple of months ago, and he was so angry at chess. 
at yeah. the Sephardic political party. And he was so angry at Sephardi Haredim um, in his neighborhood who dressed with a black hat. And he was so angry, my Ashkenazi friends. For him, it was a betrayal of their Sephardic Judaism. And it's interesting because I, I don't feel angry and I actually defended them. People adapt in different ways to their surroundings. And I would say, as, a, as someone with a quite a strong feminist consciousness, I really understand what it means to use, you know, the, if you want to use Audrey Lord, to use the master's tools, yeah. right? To try to dismantle the master's house. And I understand 100% why in their particular environment that they would take on those trappings to deal with their society. It doesn't mean that I want to do it or that I want to adopt it. I don't judge them for that. And I have a lot of admiration for the way that Rovada Yosef really gave back uh, dignity and pride and power to Sephardic Jews in Israel. And I say this even as I have increasing, I would say, rage as to how the Shas political party right now is acting in a way that I think is destructive to uh, the Jewish people, the state of Israel, you know, a lot of other things, even as I love, and I make a distinction between political leaders and those who vote for Shas. Right, uh, right, but right now, what we're seeing right now in Israel, in terms of the the, the rising uh, corruption, especially I would yeah. say in the Shas political party, is just it's heartbreaking, and it's heartbreaking also because you see often how there are open wounds, and the wounds aren't addressed by the mainstream, and then right. you have parties who come and they're like, "Here, we're here, ready to take on the wounds," and I applaud that, but then eventually you often have people who just want to. Use those ones. Yeah, weaponized resentment. We we saw it exactly. I tell you what I think. I think that, and it's you know, I, I don't know the Sephardic experience as well as you do. Experiences uh, and dress. There's many of them. Yeah, experiences. So experiences. Sorry, true. Sorry. I look at what happened to Shaz, and for me, it's the shame of the road not taken. Meaning, in an idealized world, right? Like, I know the world is not ideal. I think that Sephardic jury could have offered a way to deal with modernity and with postmodernity that we lost because we drowned that Sephardic experience into an ultra-Orthodox Haredi sort of Ashkenazi language. Meaning, because historically uh, Sephardic Jewry has been more organic in the way they articulated tradition and change, and as you say, there was no rupture, maybe they could serve as an alternative to the dialectic of rapture that we see now between Judaism and modernity. In other words, didn't we miss out as a Jewish people on a model that is more organic, that is less conflictive, that we could have leveraged and could have offered some responses for today? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I would say this is the challenge, okay? The challenge is that well, first of all, the model exists today. You definitely have, uh, especially in Israel, like a Mizrahi, Masorati, traditional public that is mo more moderate than Shas, right. and that reflects a certain organic orientation towards uh, Judaism and Jewish uh, observance and Jewish peoplehood. The problem, though, and this is where it gets really tricky, and you have sociologists who have written about this, is that the organic nature of those communities, it's almost like part of the reason it survives is that it doesn't have institutions. And the second mm -hmm. it has institutions, it often transforms into something else. But without institutions, it doesn't have as much ability to influence and to have power. So it's almost right. like a catch-22. 
It's like Shas is able, and by the way, Shas, as much as it has a lot of bad things, there are still some good things about it. I think that it's a better, there's a, one of my advisors, Nisim Leon, writes about their Haredi Judaism as being softer in some ways right. than the Ashkenazi one. So, so I don't want to presume that it's become, you know, a fully Ashkenazi community. In many ways it hasn't. But I think that this is the catch-22, to have power, right? And especially in an Israeli ecosystem where Sephardic and Israeli Jews were systematically discriminated against in very obvious way for a very long time. You needed to build certain institutions. You needed to work right. within a political system. And that almost by itself ends up like bastardizing, right? That's where it gets really complicated. And the, and the incentive structure continues, I think, to reward. Yeah, to favor the institutional... Political, yeah. The accumulation of institutional and political power. So Yeah, so that's where it gets yeah. really complicated. And, and, so, and, and I'm not a fan of the wish that is right now, but I'm also a little bit... Um, I don't have the rage that many of my Ashkenazi friends feel right. at seeing their Ashkenazi garb partially because I understand the, the obstacles and the challenges yeah, that we're having. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and to be clear, for me, it's not rage. I'm not judging it. I'm just yeah. saying... No, it's I'm just not, it was somebody else, not you. Yeah. No, it's just a shame that we that we kind of can't see a different model of integrating tradition and modernity in a more organic way. But let's talk about something else. I, I read a, a beautiful piece that you wrote about... I mean, and it touches on some of the things you said about the ethnic dimensions, but you wrote something about the importance of relationships in shaping identities. You wrote about kids being taught to love the Sidur because the people that they love, love the Sidur as well. Can the relationship-based Judaism offer something that we're missing there? Yeah, that's, that's why I wrote the piece. <laughs> yeah. um, I think 100%. I think that I'm increasingly... I think relationships are the antidote to ideology in my book. And I'm working through this, so my terms are still a little bit raw. But I think that we are in a world right now, especially in the West, where we are being asked to shape our commitments in ideological terms. Uh -huh. It's all about the credo. Where are you? Right. You know, what do you believe in? And I find that incredibly dangerous. I also don't think it's authentic to Jewish tradition, which from mm -hmm. its inception was relational. It was God calling out to Abraham to follow God, not to have a, you know, 13 principles of faith or any sort of like ideological credo. It began as a family in which you're supposed to care for each other and as a covenant between God and the Jewish people. So I, I think that both in terms of what I believe are the roots of Judaism and also what I believe are the dangers facing us today, that we need to insist on relationships. We need to insist on the countercultural value of loving people, caring for them, and being committed to them, independent of ideological position. Right. I'm not saying give up on ideology fully. I'm not there, but but we it's become it becomes a dangerous world where human relationships are always subservient to ideological commitments. Yeah, and I, and I think it it makes a lot of sense to as you did before with chess. Like one thing is the political leadership. And another thing is people that have very human needs and their goal is not to accumulate political or uh, economic power just to be heard, to be seen. Um, and, and I think that's what relationships can do. And paradoxically, it can actually weaken those that 
become merchants of hate and resentment because under them, at the, at the Amcha level, there is that weave of relationship that is much different. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I don't want to be Pollyannish and pretend like this can solve everything easily. I know that I'm struggling a lot. I I live in the U.S., but my heart is in Israel, and that's all I read right now. And I think my biggest struggle right now is that I is how to be in relationship with people, specifically those who are consecrating ideology over Jewish peoplehood. There was something very interesting, and I'm not a both sides guy. Like I think there is, in particularly in this crisis, I think there is one side that is responsible for what's going on and another side that is responding. But there was a huge difference between what you would saw from the leadership, from people like Venkvir and and what you saw last week, and we were recording this right after the vote on the reasonableness clause of the Supreme Court in Israel. You saw that image of the train in Jerusalem with one side going to the demonstration in Tel Aviv in favor of the reform and the other one coming down to the demonstration in Jerusalem, and people were just shaking hands with each other and joking with each other. Yes, they were an opposite side, but they had a relationship. Uh, And it becomes way more difficult to demonize the other side when you have a relation with people on the other side. Listen, I think maybe what we have to do is have a new Zionist kind of credo, kind of learning from Ben-Gurion and others. It's like fight... Like you, I also feel like I have my own opinion on what's happening right now. And I am against this kind of, I am pro-judicial reform, but I'm against this way of passing judicial reform. But I think we might want to fight what this coalition is doing uh, as though we have no relationship with people on that side, but then insist in loving people and having relationships with them as though there is no overhaul attempt, right? It's like trying to insist on both. And and I think that is going to be the only way that we might be able to move forward. Because what scares me, I I don't think Israel is becoming a dictatorship. I think we're far from that. I think that this was a a small, in my opinion, kind of like reform in terms of what the desire originally was. But my my real concern uh, or what animates my sense of dread actually is what happens when in a small country besieged by enemy nations in a complicated and changing world, we have a society where social bonds are frayed and right. people cannot trust each other and they don't think yeah. they have each other's shared interests at heart. And that is, I think, what, what could, God forbid, lead to collapse. Yeah. We don't have to get into the digital reform, but I am interested, like you, in what it's doing to the social bonds in a place that doesn't have the luxury that the U.S. have of being a self-sufficient country, isolated from any major enemies by two oceans. So, Yeah, and big enough that we can avoid each other if we want to in the U.S. Right, exactly. I know this could be a topic for a completely different conversation, but you mentioned theology in passing. And that's become a little bit of an obsession of mine in in the last few years, the lack of theological thinking in the Jewish community. And so I'm kind of pushing a little bit because you talked a lot about sociology. You talked a lot about, I mean, you are a sociologist, you're you're making a sociological study. Don't you see that there is room and need for also new theological thinking? not only sociological. Uh, yeah, as, as I mentioned, Andres, I, uh, I am privileged enough in my life to exercise 
different methods. Right. <laughs> I have my sociological work and I also lead a community where where I have the, the gift of being able to talk about God and to ask questions right. and to be in community and ask about what it means to live a life in which we are in relationship with God. Um, I would say for me that, and it's like a personal thing, the sociological and the theological are highly connected. Mm-hmm. They do not feel like different conversations. I think a lot about how my understanding of God informs the way that I think about my relationship with humans and vice versa. A couple of months ago, I remember I had this, it was like a theological, it, it felt like a moment of like a theological insight when I right. saw, I was in, in shul and I saw there was a kid in the kids program. It's a longer story, but anyways, freaking out because the parent isn't there and there's 10 minutes of other parents trying to calm down this kid, this toddler. And finally the dad comes back and hugs him and the kid just quiets down completely. And I'm thinking like, there's nothing different about how he held the kid. All the other parents were trying so hard and hugging and killing and but there's something about this particularity of feeling like you're my own, uh, and this is a long way of me saying that moment helped me understand our covenant with God in a different way. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think there's actually important ways, or at least the personality thing for me, in which the sociological, whether we're talking about small anecdotes like the one I described, or thinking about the Jewish people, and our thinking of God are intertwined. And I agree with you, we don't do enough of that. I think we are numb to kind of. We are so busy, you know, in this rat race and, and trying to achieve and build and, and accumulate more money that we, we really don't ask the questions about why we are put in this world, what we hope to do after 120 years, right, of being yeah. here, the people we hope to become, what does it mean to stand before our creator? And I, I'm with you in yeah. thinking that we need to ask those questions. And I think that inadvertently, you might have answered one of the deepest theological questions that we face now, which is in a time of artificial intelligence and transhumanism and genetical (laughs) engineer, what makes a truly human? And you just point out to something that no computer, no artificial intelligence can do, which is hug a toddler that is crying and calming him down. Don't tempt the AI God, you know, they might hear you. They might hear you. But but you know what? Maybe what you were, but but, but that's what you were saying. You were saying all the other people were trying to do the same. Right. So there's something. And and there was something in the way the parent did it. And I think that's what love is, by the way, the particularity of love, which we can talk about much more. But I'll say this one last thing. I know we're closing right now. I, I do think that part of what I, as a, as a religious person, I take very seriously that the closest I can ever get to see God, okay, to have a physical, right, understanding of God is in the face of another human being. Right. That is the closest I will ever get to witnessing the transcendent, transcendence of God. And I think walking around with this theological and covenantal and religious understanding must shape the way that we encounter each other. Not in a way that leads us to not ask questions about God, but in a way that puts them together and demands that we think of them at the same time. Beautiful. Thank you, Michal, very much. Thanks, Andres. It was great chatting AI theology, Israel's (laughs) theology, all that. Thanks so much to Dr. Michal Bitton. You can learn more about her work 
and the downtown minyan at the downtown minyan all in one word.com thank you for tuning in we want to hear your feedback about this podcast but also guest ideas breaking philanthropic news whatever you want to send us write to us please at communications at jfunders.org Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at atspokoini. I leave you with a quote from Coretta Scott King, who said, The greatness of a community is most accurately measured by the compassionate actions of its members. So keep acting compassionately, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives.